Good evening to all of you. Greetings in the name of Jesus again tonight. I would like to thank all of you for praying today for me as I got ready for this message tonight. And I just want to say I've really enjoyed listening to your singing, your congregational singing and also the special singing. I did have a question, though. Um, the Weaver family sang. I wondered if the other ministerial families are going to be singing at all in the near future. Um, might want to bring some extra people if the Sensenigs are going to get up here. So, anyway. I don't know if any of you are aware of this or not, um, but next year we have a presidential election. And right now, one of the biggest things that um, the political world is looking at is the idea of socialism and how that factors into, into America. And just today, by chance, I read um, this recent survey that they did where it said that four in 10 Americans are now in favor of some form of socialism in America. And I'm not here tonight to, to talk politics, um, but from reading a little bit on socialism and the favoritism that's being showed towards um, socialism, one of the things that a lot of people are saying is that the reason the younger generation is in favor of socialism is because they haven't seen the results of socialism. In other words, um, my generation, like I can barely remember being a little boy and understanding that Russia was like a scary place to be. Um, I understood like communism and Russia like went hand in hand as a young boy. Um, but to me, that was like, that was a scary place to be, and I, heard, I remember being little and hearing stories of, of people coming out of Russia and the results of socialism. And in today's world, um, we read stories of Christians in China, Christians in places like North Korea, um, who are suffering tremendously because of socialism and the results of that. And the biggest reason people suffer under socialism is because the government tries to control everything. And especially in China, one of the things that they fear is people, they want people's allegiance to be to the government. And so when people become a Christian, they're saying we're no longer, our allegiance no longer is to the government, it's now to Jesus Christ. And so to them that's a threat. But it's interesting to me reading different articles about this and this idea of how young people aren't as afraid of socialism because they don't understand all the different aspects of it. And they miss out on the, maybe the horrors of, of what um, socialism can look like. You and I, as, as Christians, are called to look back over history and learn from different um, experiences, different incidences in history, so we can learn by looking back. But there's a time where you and I, as Christians, are called to not look back and wish for what we had before. And when we are, are tempted to look back as Christians, when Satan comes, to, comes into our mind and tries to get us to look back on what we were involved in before as a non-believer, isn't it interesting how Satan never brings back to our minds the horrible things or the horrible way that we felt he never brings back to our minds the condemnation that we felt or the guilt. 
Satan only ever brings back to our minds the quote-unquote good things that we experienced as a sinner. And he wants us to focus on that. And he's trying to block out all the other terrible things that we experienced because of the sin in our lives. And I'd like to call it maybe selective recall, where Satan is saying, I'm going to allow this to come back into your mind so you think on it this way instead of looking at it as you should look at it. Let's go to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. And I'd like to look at an account of the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. It says, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. So this is the 15th day of the second month. In other words, they've been out for about 45 days, 46 days approximately. It says, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the children of Israel had been on this journey for about 45 days. And in the chapter prior to this, chapters, we have the account of the children of Israel being released from Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. We know the story how the Egyptians come behind them. And the children of Israel are all there and they're like, we're going to die. You know, we're trapped between the, the, the Egyptians and the Red Sea. They're just going to kill us all. And God miraculously takes the cloud, brings it between the children of Israel and the Egyptians, and then overnight makes the strong sea blow out across the Red Sea, divides the sea. The children of Israel walk across it on dry land. The Egyptians follow behind them. God brings the water back together, and he drowns the Egyptians, and then Miriam leads them in the song of deliverance. And they all have this amazing experience exalting God for his miraculous deliverance from the Egyptians. And then there's this little account in between there where they came to this place where they wanted to drink some water. The water was bitter. They put a tree into the water and God made the water sweet. And they could drink it. Two miracles within about a month and a half time. And the children of Israel come into the wilderness and they start murmuring against Moses and against Aaron. And the first thing that they say is, we wish we were back in Egypt. We wish we were back in Egypt where we had plenty to eat. The, it says here how the, the pots were full of flesh, they were full of meat, and we could eat bread until we were full. If I'm Moses... If I'm Moses, I would have said, wait, wait a second. Wait just one minute. You're talking about food. Is that all you remember? This is a month and a half ago. That's the only thing that you can remember. The fact that you got plenty to eat. That's all you can remember? You don't remember going out and trying to, to make those bricks 
You don't remember the Egyptians taking away your supplies and then telling you that you weren't allowed to drop the quota? You don't remember that and they kept taking things away from you? You don't remember any of that? You don't remember all the horrible things that happened to the Egyptians because they refused to humble themselves under the hand of God? You don't remember any of that? All you remember is the food. Aren't you glad you were never Moses? I'm pretty sure if I would have been Moses and it got to the point where God said, get back Moses, I'm going to destroy them, I think I would have just walked away and said, I'll be back later when you're finished. But Moses displays this tremendous meekness and he walks the children of Israel through this. But when you look at the children of Israel and their attitude, all they could remember after seeing the hand of God at work in their lives, all they could remember was going back to Egypt, to a place that all it symbolized to them was bondage and hardship and misery, suffering. And they remembered just that one little tiny good bit about it, and they said, that's where we want to go back. We want to go back to what we had before. Now jump back a little further in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, we have the story of Lot. And in the beginning of this chapter, we have the angels coming to Lot, and they told him how God was going to destroy the city. And we have the whole account of the, the men of, of Sodom trying to get into the house and Lot's discourse with them and how horrible all of that was. But we're going to jump in at verse 15. It says, And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife, and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou on all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything unto, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the city and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning of the place to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, 
And beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. When you look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the things that I see in this story is the tremendous grace and mercy that God showed to Lot, his wife, and his daughters. Not only was Lot living here among the, in the city, among all of these people, these people that are clearly described in the, in the verses preceding the ones that I read as being people who were extremely wicked. They were so wicked that when the men, when these two men came into his house, the men of the city gathered around the door and said that they wanted to have sexual relationships with these two men that they had never seen before in their lives. That was the only thing that they thought about. And after they were struck with blindness, the Bible says they still wearied themselves to find the door. That was the condition of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, people who were living in extreme debauchery, horrible condition. So here's Lot and his family. They're living right among all of that. And God sends two angels to his house to tell him exactly what's going to happen. And right in the verse before, the one that I read, that's how Lot went out and he talked to his son-in-laws and he tried to tell them that God was going to destroy the city. And it says that it was as if he made a mockery. It seemed as one that mocked into his sons. In other words, his sons were like, you're not even serious. Like, You have no idea what you're talking about. But God in His grace, the next morning, in verse 15, it says, the morning arose and the angels were, they were in a hurry to get out of the city. And Lot's just kind of standing around like, you know, what's the big hurry? We're just going to be here for a little bit longer and we'll get out of the city. And eventually, the angels took hold of their hands and took them outside of the city. And I don't know if it was some type of miraculous deliverance, um, but it says that the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. It's almost like God picked up Lot and his wife and his two daughters, physically carried them over here and set them down outside of the city. Some parts of this story or it's really difficult for me to understand. But the point that I think God wants us to see is the extent to which He goes as He reaches out to save each of us. When God determines that there is a person who is going to respond to the, ver- to the voice of His Holy Spirit, to a per- when God sees a person who has a heart that the soil is ripe and ready to receive the seed, I believe there is nothing that can stop the hand of God from reaching into the life of that individual. And here we see God showing His mercy and His grace to Lot and his family. God gets them outside of the city. He's saving them. Even though you see them just kind of lingering behind, God takes them outside. 
And then Lot has the audacity to turn to these angels when they, when they say to him, now, get out of the plane, get up into the mountains. And Lot's like, wait a second. Like, I'm afraid to go up into the mountains. What if, what if something bad happens to me? What if, something, what if some calamity comes upon me? What if some evil takes me and I die? Do you get a picture of how merciful God really is? Because the angels say to him, all right, you pointed out this city. You said clearly that it's a little one. You can go into this city and you'll be okay there. They go into this little city and then it says in verse 24, God rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. In other words, everything was destroyed. In verse 26, we see this little part that's plugged into this story. It says, But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. When I look at Lot's wife, and I think about how she looked back at what was being destroyed, in verse 27 it says how Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And in verse 28 it says how he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah. These two individuals looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah with two very different types of looks. Abraham was looking, thinking, was God merciful? Is it by chance God found enough of righteous people in the city that he didn't destroy it? And he's looking back towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But when we look at Lot's wife and how she looked back towards the city, when those angels said, you don't look back when we're leaving this place. When Lot's wife looked back, she didn't just glance back thinking, I wonder if it's starting to burn. I think Lot's wife turned and looked back and thought, I want to go back. I wish I was, I wish I was back in Sodom. She was looking back and she was thinking, my, my possessions, my, my stuff, my, the people that, that I love, because it says that the angels took out Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, which I'm assuming were the two daughters which were unmarried that Lot had offered to these men. I'm assuming that it's those two same daughters, but it doesn't say that they brought out Lot's son-in-laws or his other daughters so possibly Lot's wife was looking back thinking about all of those relationships that she was leaving behind. All those people that she had interacted with. Maybe even the people that she loved. That she was connected to. And as she's looking back, she wasn't just looking back with a little bit of a glance. She was looking back with longing. The same way the children of Israel, when they were out in the wilderness, when they were there and they were hungry, 
said, we just want to go back to Egypt where we can have plenty to eat. Lot's wife was looking back, longing for what she was leaving behind. Did you know Jesus talked about Lot's wife? In Luke chapter 17, verse 32, Jesus says this in verse 32. It's a very simple phrase. It says, remember Lot's wife. And he was talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And he was saying how when the Son of Man returns, it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah and how there was people eating and drinking when the flood came. In the days of Lot, when all those people were just going about their daily business and God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven. And in verse 31, Jesus says, In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Because remember Lot's wife. Remember her example. Remember how she looked back and wished she could go back to what she was leaving behind. In the same book, Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, verses 57 to 62. There were different people who were coming to Jesus They were asking to follow him and some others that Jesus called. And Jesus says this to them. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto Jesus, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which were at, my, at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says he's talking here to these different men. He's helping them to understand the cost of discipleship and what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. There was a certain man who said, I want to follow you. And Jesus reminded him, I don't even have a place to call my own. That's one of the hardships that you'll face if you follow me. Another person said, Jesus said, uh, Jesus said to him, follow me. This man said, Jesus, first of all, I need to go and bury my father. And Jesus says, well, Let them take care of themselves. And another one says, I'm going to follow you. But first of all, let me go home and say goodbye to the people who are at my house. Jesus says very clearly that any man, after he says, I am committed to this task, if he looks back and says in his heart, I want to go back to what I had before I met Christ, that individual is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying we need to separate ourselves from what we had before, what we were before, what we identified with before. We need to separate ourselves from all of that and look straight ahead 
following after the one who has called us. Brother Jim mentioned the other night that the first time that we met was in Grenada, 2001, if I remember correctly. And Grenada was the first trip that I ever took on a commercial flight. I had been on smaller planes before then, but that was the first commercial flight that I'd ever gone on. So that was kind of an experience for, for me. But um, I remember we got to Grenada, and my whole class went to the Limes because that's where um, everybody else was coming to pick us up and everything else because we were getting shuttled all over the place. So we were there at the Limes, and while we were there, um, if I remember correctly, I think we had a meal there, and so that we spent a fair amount of time there. But while we were there, I remember we were outside um, playing basketball, and we looked up, and we saw the plane that we came in, came in on leaving the island. And I, just, I remember specifically one of the guys saying, well, this is for real. We're stuck now because there goes our plane. And we kind of laughed about it because we were like, yeah, you know, I mean, we had plans to be there for a week. So to us, it wasn't a big deal. But looking back on that experience, if that truly would have been the last flight out of Grenada, if there would have been some problem that would have been on the horizon and the United States would have said, that's the last flight out, our attitude would have been completely different. I can guarantee you. Probably we would have never gotten off the plane in the first place. But if we would have known that that's the last flight leaving Grenada, all of us would have been fighting to get onto that plane because we wouldn't have wanted to be stuck there. Maybe Jim would have liked to have stayed, I don't know. But for us, as a class, we would have been like, we're not staying, you know, we want to go back home again. In our Christian lives, I think every person here who is a Christian could say that at the beginning of your Christian experience, that first initial joy that you felt was really, really exciting. And you sensed the excitement and the joy of having surrendered your life to Christ. But as time went on, that feeling of, of joy maybe escaped you just a little bit, and it seemed like the joy kind of ebbed, which I think is natural, because when you first have your encounter with Jesus Christ and you accept Jesus as your Savior, that feeling of all, like I said, this, the condemnation and that guilt that you felt before, it's finally lifted and it's like, I'm free. I'm free from all of that. But as time goes on and that excitement wears off, I'm standing there. My hands might be on the plow. I might be looking forward, but there's still this temptation to just turn my head a little bit and just look back just a tiny bit and look back at what I was or maybe what I experienced before I met Christ. I hesitate to use stories that I can't confirm to have occurred historically. And I did a number of, quite a bit of research on this, on this story um, so I can't guarantee you that it's true, all right? 
But it's a story about a man by the name of Hernan Cortez, who was one of the early um, conquistadores. Uh, I don't know what the, what's the English word, the con conquerors or whatever. Um, he was one of the early people who came to the Americas. And in 15, 1519, he sailed to Veracruz, Mexico with his crew. And when he got there, um, his men got, all his men got off of the ship. And for a while, um, they were there and they were going through the different area. But with time, the men became afraid of staying there. And so a number of them started talking about going back to their old life. In other words, getting back on the ship and sailing back to where they came from. And this is the part of the story that I'm not exactly sure is true, but legend has it that um, Hernan Cortez got wind of this, that his men were talking about going back over to Spain. And so he told the men, he gathered all of the men together, and he said, listen, we're in this together. We came here to conquer. We didn't just come here to look around, have a little bit of enjoyment, kind of experience the country, and then leave again. We came here to take over. That was our goal when we left, and it's still our goal. And he told some of his men to take a boat out to their ships, and he told them, I want you to burn the ships. I want you to burn them and get rid of them. So all of these men know that we are here, we are committed to this, and we are not going back to where we came from. If the story is true, and if the legend is actually accurate, the question that I have tonight is how do you think those men felt as they stood there recognizing that the only means of transportation to get back to where they were come from was going up in flames. At that moment, they had a choice to make where either they could really put themselves into their mission or they were just going to have to abandon those men and stay where they were. In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, we have the story of Elisha. And God's calling on the life of Elisha. I'd like to jump in reading at verse 19. In 1 Kings chapter 19, it says, So he departed thence. This is Elijah after his account with God in the cave. He departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. In verse 19, we're introduced to Elisha, and it says that he was out in the field and he was plowing. Um, it says with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. In other words, 
there was probably 12 different yokes of oxen that were out there plowing, and Elisha was in charge of one of them. So Elisha is there plowing the field, and in my mind, I picture Elisha's there doing his thing, and all of a sudden, he senses something coming around his neck, and he looks over, and there's this man passing by him, putting his mantle around him. The reason why I think that he did it in passing is because it says in verse 20 that he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. In other words, Elijah comes past Elisha, puts the mantle on, and then continues on, and Elisha stops what he's doing and he runs after Elijah. And he says, wait a minute, can I go back and can I kiss my father and my mother and then I'm going to come after and I'm going to follow you? And Elijah says, sure, go back. And then he asks him this question, for what have I done to thee? When you look at the question that Elijah is asking Elisha, it's almost as if Elijah is testing Elisha to see if he's really understanding what Elijah just did, if he's understanding what the symbolism of all of it is, that Elijah is passing on to Elisha his calling to be a prophet. But when I look at the the example of Elisha, in verse 21, it says he went back and he took a yoke of oxen and he slew them and he boiled them with the boiled their flesh using the instruments of the oxen. In other words, Elisha goes back and in my mind I'm picturing Elisha getting the very set of oxen that he was using to plow the field and he kills them and he takes the very yoke that would have been holding these two oxen together in the field. He takes that very yoke and he uses it as firewood to cook the meat of these two oxen. All of those other people that would have been there would have seen what he was doing. I believe that Elisha understood perfectly well the calling that Elijah was laying upon him. And he understood that he was going to have to abandon the life that he was living. And he took the very thing that right before this he was using to identify as part of his work. He took those very things, he kills them and he cooks them and he gives them to everybody else that was there as a sign that he was leaving behind what he had done before to go and be the prophet of God. He understood the calling that God was laying on his life. As you look through scripture and you see different examples of people who lived lives of faith, Elisha is one of them. Elijah obviously is another. But when you look at how people responded in scripture when God called them, the ones who were faithful were willing to abandon whatever they were doing. They were willing to leave it behind so they could serve God in whatever capacity He called them to. 
Look at the example of Abraham. Abraham was called by God to go out and sojourn in a land where he didn't have any specifics. God told him to go out. And the Bible says how Abraham left all of that because his eyes were fixed on a city whose builder and maker is God himself. Abraham was willing to do it. Look at the example of Moses. Moses was another individual who the Bible says was willing to choose to suffer afflictions as a child of God instead of enjoy the pleasures of Egypt for a season. Moses was an individual who could have taken part in all the pleasures of sin and everything else and would have been justified in the eyes of the Egyptians for doing it because legally he was Pharaoh's own son. But instead of doing that, he was willing to abandon it all, leave it all behind to go and serve God. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have the the chapter of faith. And at the end of that chapter, there are some verses that talk about the individuals who suffered greatly for the cause of God, for the cause of the gospel, for the cause of, of standing for truth. And in Hebrews 11, the end of the verse, or the, the last part of the chapter, it talks about people who were, were cut into pieces, people who were sawn asunder, people who lived in caves, people who the world looked at as total outcasts and rejects. And the Bible says how those individuals, the world didn't even deserve to lay their eyes upon. In other words, these people were such great people of faith that the world wasn't even worthy to be in company of those individuals. But when you look at those people, each of them had a choice that they needed to make. And their choice was, am I going to put my hands to the plow, keep my eyes fixed on what's ahead, or am I going to make a flippant commitment where I'm going to say, sure, I can do that. I can put my hands to the plow. But with time, as Satan comes along and he brings back to their minds all the things that they enjoyed, all of the, the pleasures, the things that maybe brought them a certain measure of happiness, as time passes and Satan brings those things to their minds, they start turning their head just a little bit, and then they start looking back and wishing they could go back there. I don't believe that God has called each of us out of a life of sin to be floundering, weak Christians. I believe that God has created us to be strong in faith and strong in might. God has given us every measure of power that we need to live a life of victory. He has given us a spirit of discernment. So when Satan comes along and wants us to look back, we can say, I'm not looking back. Because I understand with a clear mind exactly 
what I have been delivered from, what I have chosen to leave behind. I have chosen to leave it back there. As I examine my own life, and I think about my own spiritual journey, there are many times where I have wished that my spiritual journey would have been a linear path, a straight path, where I walked out of sin, never looked back, or went back. But that's not my story. As I look back on my spiritual journey and my experience of accepting the Lord, allowing vices to come into my life that controlled me, seeking to be free of that, falling back, and seeking to be free of it, and going through that back-and-forth motion, as I look at that, it has made my spiritual journey today much more difficult. If you take a piece of wood and you pound a nail into that piece of wood and you pull the nail out, and you pound it back into that hole again, and you pull it out, and you pound it back in again, and you pull it out, it's going to reach a point where that nail no longer has any power to stay held in the wood. Because the wood is going to become so worn that there isn't going to be anything to hold that nail in place. Scripture clearly teaches that you and I are crucified with Jesus Christ. We are crucified. And Paul says, nevertheless, not I, but Christ who lives within me. Christ is the one who comes to life within me. When I choose to nail myself to that cross, But when I choose to look behind me, I choose to look back at what I was before, and I choose to go back. In essence, I am pulling my hands off of the cross, and I am getting down, and I am walking away. And if later on I choose to come back and be nailed back to the cross, if I do it again, as time passes and I do this time and time again, those nails aren't going to hold as well. You and I are called to put our hands to the plow and not look back. We aren't looking back at what we were. We aren't looking back at any of that with any desire to go back. Lot's wife looked back and she reaped the consequences. The children of Israel looked back and they kept looking back 
and God couldn't use them. But then there's the example of Elisha, a man who said, I understand what God is calling me to do. God is calling me to service for Him, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to destroy everything that was part of my identity or part of the identity of my former life, I'm going to destroy all of that. So I am free to go with Elijah. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to serve God however He calls me. You and I tonight have a choice to make. Are we going to be purposed in our heart with our choice that we make to cast no looks back and solely look forward? Or are we going to attempt to bring back into our lives anything that we might have left behind? And tonight I'm going to tell you, as part of my testimony, there is nothing from the past that is wicked, that is evil, or that pulled you in that direction that you can make part of your life and still be able to keep your vision forward 100% of the time. Jesus was explaining very clearly the cost of following him. And he says time and time again that we need to consider those costs. We need to weigh those costs. Tonight I simply want to challenge all of us in our Christian lives to be purposed, to keep our eyes set forward, to free ourselves from anything that's back there. And if we need to, we go back and we burn it so we can be set free from any temptation to go back to who we were before. And until we do that, until we're willing to completely destroy it all, we're not going to find true deliverance and true freedom. Let's pray. God, tonight, we acknowledge that You are Lord and you are sovereign. God, you have created each of us here tonight. And you look on us with eyes of love. And for those of us who have been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light, God, it's so amazing. And we rejoice and bask in the glow of the presence of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary So each of us can be set free. We can break the bonds that we formerly experienced as a sinner. They can be broken and they never have to come back. But somehow Satan always manages to entice us and to call us. He wants us to look back and and to think about all the things that we're missing. And God, all of it is so cheap. All of it is cheap. None of us want to go back. God, help us to purpose in our hearts tonight 
as we lay our hands to the plow, that we are going to grip it and hold on and look forward for the rest of our lives. And God, thank you. And we don't have to do it by ourselves, but you enable us and you empower us to be able to continue forward looking towards you. God, work in our hearts and stir in our lives. God, if there is someone here tonight who has never placed their hands on the plow, they've weighed the cost and it sounds like it's too much, God, I pray that you would help them to see the freedom that comes through surrender. And God, if there's someone here tonight who has laid their hands to the plow, but those things behind them keep calling them, I pray that they would be willing to go back to destroy anything that could be keeping them from true freedom in Christ. God, may your spirit move among us here this evening. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to sing one verse of song. And if you're here tonight and you want to burn whatever's back there, I invite you to come forward and do that. <laughs>